Kalko by Esau Gemeente Media. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll begin reading with verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Uh, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. I don't know about you, but uh, this morning it's been kind of a, a frazzled morning for me. So uh, before I really get into preaching, I want to tell you one of my new favorite quotes. I, I can't tell you, I don't remember who said it, but I, I really enjoy the quote. It goes like this. Cigarettes, much like weasels, are relatively harmless unless you put one in your mouth and try to light it up. So I, you know, that's a new favorite quote, and and one of my one of my new favorite jokes that I that I got, uh, although I don't know if you'll appreciate it or not, but here it is. Um, you know, shortly before Grandpa died, Grandma smeared lard all over his back. He went downhill really fast after that. <laughs> so okay, good. I, I got you know you would not believe the number of people that give me a dead stare on that second one. What's happening? So, uh, oh, I appreciate that. It's uh, it's good. It's good to be back with you. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here, especially on Easter Sunday, uh, the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, a number of years ago, I was at a conference in the United States. Now, how many of you are from a Dutch Reformed background? Okay, so quite a few of you are from Dutch Reformed background. Uh, my background in the U.S. is Presbyterian. And uh, so we have a lot in common that way. And the denomination that I was a part of was having a convocation on the future of the church, as they called it. Actually, they meant the future of the denomination. And uh, this convocation was by invitation only. Uh, It's supposed to be a very select group of people uh, from uh, around the denomination, from around the country. There are about two and a half million people or so uh, that were members of the denomination at that time. 
And so we all met, I believe it was in Chicago, Illinois, and it consisted of pastors and elders and a few uh, other lay people in the, in the denomination coming together, listening to various speakers, having conversations and things, trying to envision God's future for the denomination. And uh, one of the most poignant conversations I had, I, I, was, I was around a lunch table. Uh, we had circular tables, and I was sitting at this table with uh, about five other men, I believe it was. I, I think they were all men. And, uh, and next to me was another pastor. He was from Oklahoma. And uh, the rest uh, of the men were elders in churches from various places. And we were talking about the future of the denomination and some of the problems that we were having. And, uh, and we had pretty good banter going back and forth, uh, talking about the different problems that were going on. And then all of a sudden, uh, the man, you know, kind of in a good-natured, uh, uh, almost half-joking kind of way, says something like, well, and you know what the biggest problem of all is? And I said, well, what is that? He said, well, it's, it's people believing in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You know, what we really need is people to understand that the resurrection was really a metaphor uh, about what God wanted to do and a metaphor of the promise of God and a metaphor about life and the like. And, and, and I, so I kind of chuckle along with him and I say, yeah, right, that's right. And he kept going. And all of a sudden I realized he was serious. And uh, in a few short moments he was denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Completely. And not only was he denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but he was blaming the belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as one of the primary issues for the decline of the denomination. Now, I have a policy that I've practiced my entire ministry. Uh, and it, it's, it's primarily, it's a, it's a policy I believe is good because I'm not God. Um, and that policy is never to tell somebody that they are damned and going to hell. I almost broke that policy that day. Denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Yet, you know, it doesn't seem so unrealistic in our world, in our society today, that people would be saying that. Because after all, for the last 200 years or so, increasingly, religious belief, religious faith has been marginalized in our society. Has been marginalized in, in many cultures that have their foundations in the West. That uh, religious belief, religious faith has been something that people have said, well, that's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of your preference. It's a matter of your culture or upbringing. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, obviously you'd be a Muslim. If you were born in the United States, obviously you would be a Christian. And people take that approach and they say, well, you know, so, so what's to say that uh, the faith of Islam is any worse than the faith of Christianity? And you can add on to that Hinduism or Buddhism. After all, all roads lead to the same, same place. All roads lead up, lead up the same mountain. They just take different pathways. And after all, since religion is not objectively verifiable, since it is not subject to scientific verification, uh, therefore we can't really trust it. And, uh, and it is, a, after all, a matter of opinion. Because, as many people would say in our society, the only thing that is truly real is that which we can test scientifically. 
And unless we can subject it to scientific verification, it's not real. Unless we know it by science, we can't know it at all. But yet, that approach is patently false. How many of you are married here? Okay, now I I should have set you up before this a different way. Uh, Hopefully there aren't any troubled marriages here. Uh, How many of you who are married believe that your husband or wife loves you? Prove it. Subject it to testing. Verify it. How many of you still believe that your husband or wife really loves you? How many of you say, I know that my husband or wife loves me? That's right. We can know things that are not scientifically verifiable. How many of you know that Abraham Lincoln was the president of the United States back in the 1860s? You heard that? Okay, a few of you have known that. Uh, Okay, Uh, but you know something? You can't prove that. That is not scientifically verifiable that Abraham Lincoln was the President of the United States. There are lots of things that we know that are not subject to science. And in fact, when you look at it, even science itself is sometimes quite shaky in what it knows and what it doesn't know. And yet, so much we've been trained and educated to think that the only things that we can know are things that are subject to science. And we'd have people like Richard Dawkins and others that would tell us that that that's the case. Yet, that is not true. In fact, when you look historically, we can know things. We can have knowledge. We can know what's really real. We can know truth. We can have knowledge about these things. And our knowledge is based on three things. Uh, And this is true, no matter what knowledge it is, even scientific knowledge is based on three things. The first is what we would refer to as authority. Authority. Now, some people in the past have referred to this as tradition, but it's more than tradition. Uh, I like the word authority, but you can use a number of other words. But what we mean by authority is uh, you can receive knowledge from someone else. You can receive knowledge from an expert in the field. For instance, I I love physics. I I really am fascinated by physics and the physical universe and and, uh, a number of other things like that. But I've never really studied physics. And so my knowledge of physics depends largely on scientists who have made this their life's work. They are authorities in that sense. Books are another kind of authority. Uh, The Internet can be another kind of authority. But authority is one of the ways that we know the things that we know. History is all about authority. How the history was recorded, how it was passed down, how it compares to other accounts of the the same history. That's what we mean by authority. And we can know things by authority. We can receive knowledge by authority. A second area, a second way that we receive knowledge is by our reasoning, using our minds, thinking things out. We can make certain reasonable conclusions. A plus B equals C because we see it. We can reason it out. We can think through it. 
We can reason out by looking at uh, different forms of government. You can make a reasonable conclusion that a benevolent dictatorship is the most efficient form of government. At the same time, you can make a reasonable conclusion that we probably don't want to live under a dictatorship. So you think things through. You reason it out. Then there's a third way that we know things. The third way that we know things is by experience. By experience. And then we often make reflections on our experience and compare our reflections to other authorities. So that's how we know that our spouses love us. Because we will look at our experience, the pleasure that we get, we will base that experience on on reason, reflection, on things that our spouses might do for us. You know, he might bring you breakfast in bed, and you might think, oh, you know, he really loves me. Uh, she might cook you a lovely supper, and you say, oh, she really loves me. Uh, the other day, I invented a new form of nachos in our home. Uh, it's a barbecue beef nachos with barbecue sauce, and all. I, I love these things. Oh, boy, they're good. Nice jalapeno peppers. Woo! That, that's good stuff. And, uh, and I was in the process of creating this when my wife stepped in and she actually perfected it, you know, and took it to the next level. And so a couple of days later, I wanted these again. And so I asked her for them and, and, uh, she said, well, you, well, you know how, you know how to fix them. And I said, yeah, but, but I, I just, I, I just taste the love when you do it for me. <laughs> now, so based on my experience, and my reflections on that experience, using my reasoning, you know, I figured my wife loves me. And so I can say, I can taste the love. You know, that's just the way I, yeah, I know, it's kind of soupy, sappy stuff. But, you know, that's the way it is. And so we know things based on authority, based on our reasoning, and based on our experience. And through those three sources, we achieve what we call knowledge. And everybody does it. Everybody does it. If you learn how to drive, if you have knowledge for driving, you get that knowledge on authority. When I was getting ready to study in this country, I picked up the, a copy of the highway code and I read through that authority to know the rules of the road. Uh, then I used my reasoning, uh, extrapolated from my experience of driving in the United States, reminding myself that in the U.S. we drive on the right side of the road. Here we drive on the left-hand side of the road. So I needed to figure out a reasonable way to do that. And, uh, and so I remembered that, okay, so I can remember what side of the road I'm, at, uh, I'm on. I, as the driver, I'm always in the middle of the road. And that's a nice, reasonable thing. And then I got some experience and I started driving and I made sure I didn't drive too much on the right side of the road over here. Although I do have a tendency to drive on the left when I'm in the States now, which is not a really healthy thing. Uh, but uh, that's another story entirely. Usually my wife, again, you know, out of her love, uh, she'll scream, Rod, what are you doing? What are you doing? Get on the side, on the side of the road. You know, so that's a really good help that I have. And uh, my experience tells me that I don't want to have that help too often. Uh, so it reminds me to be on, on the proper side of the road there. So, uh, uh, you know, so that's, so that's how I came about driving. And, and finally, the government said, okay, Rod, uh, you seem to do pretty well. You're past our test. Boom, you've got the knowledge. Here is your driving license to show that you have that knowledge. We do that with university and, and just about every area of life. If you've got a professional qualification, you got it in the same way. Authority, reason, experience. Authority, reason, experience. So the question comes with all of this, is religious knowledge different 
from any other knowledge. Is the knowledge of Christianity different than knowledge of mathematics or of driving or of anything else? And the answer is no. You can have religious knowledge in the same way as you have any other form of knowledge. And religious knowledge, knowledge, if you will, is not any less reliable because it's about a religious subject or about a moral subject than it is about a mathematical subject. Knowledge is knowledge and knowledge is acquired in the same way no matter what kind of knowledge that it is. Now, you can not believe knowledge. You can choose to reject knowledge as untrue. I could go out after the services today and decide that, you know, that, that the UK is ridiculous to drive on the left side of the road when everybody knows that we need to lean to the right and be on the right. You know, that's a good biblical principle. And, and I, you know, I could say that kind of thing and start driving on the right side of the road. And my refusal to embrace knowledge would have disastrous consequences. We achieve, we attain knowledge of reality in the same way, no matter what that reality is. Even the reality of God. You come by through reason, through authority, and through experience. So it doesn't matter what kind of knowledge it is. Now, obviously, knowledge in in its heart has to be a faithful representation of reality. Otherwise, it's not knowledge. It's just fantasy. So I could walk around believing that I have knowledge that I am God, but that knowledge that I was God does not, is not based in any way, shape, or form on what's really real. And we understand that. And so knowledge is there for people who want to go after it. Knowledge is there for people who want to achieve it. The problem is that so many people don't because knowledge has consequences. Knowledge makes demands on you. Once you have knowledge, you are not free really to act contrary to that knowledge. Or if you do so, you will do so to your peril. Much as now that I have knowledge that here in this country I drive on the left side of the road, I'm not free to reject that. Otherwise, I and many other people could die in a horrific automobile accident. Now where did this leave us with the resurrection of Jesus? As Christians, the heart of our faith is what happened On this day, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And that is knowledge as sure as any other knowledge. In fact, if it wasn't for the bias against knowledge of seemingly religious things in many of our cultures... If it wasn't for that bias against that, everybody would acknowledge the truth that Jesus really did rise bodily from the grave. I mean, you look at authority. Now, here's Paul. He says, now, guys, I tell you, what what I've received here is what I'm passing on to you. 
know, Jesus died according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it actually happened as it was predicted. Just see Isaiah 53. Jesus rose from the dead also in accordance with the Scriptures. And not only do we believe that He rose from the dead, this is a knowledge that we have because He was seen by Peter. I've talked to Peter, Paul says, not me personally. Uh, I've talked to Peter. He, he, he appeared to the other apostles. I've talked to many of them. He appeared to over 500 other people after He rose from the dead. They saw Him. These people interacted with Him. These people touched Him. These people ate with Him. These people related to Him until that day when He was taken up into the clouds. They are witnesses to this. And I have received this. Now the only reasonable conclusion to come to is that this is indeed true. It's in the Bible, it's in the Scriptures, it was predicted. It was also witnessed by a number of people who have relayed that to me. And now we have that witness relayed unto us. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of whom relate the the resurrection of Jesus, they give many, many details in this. It's not a fanciful story. It's not a fanciful statement. There are real, concrete details. And so even now, we have witnesses. Witnesses. And actually, this witness of Paul is the earliest witness that we have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this witness is attested by dozens and dozens and dozens of portions of manuscripts and full manuscripts of the New Testament in less than a hundred years from the time that Jesus rose from the dead. Now this is really startling. Now many people accept Caesar's Gallic Wars, his account of the Gallic Wars, as actual history. Yet the earliest full manuscripts that we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars come 500 years after it happened. Five centuries later. And what we have in the New Testament is less than a century later. The only reasonable explanation that we can come up with based on what has actually happened in history, based on what we know, not only based on the Bible, but based on what has happened globally with regard to Jesus Christ, the only reasonable explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead bodily, just as the Bible says. And then we add on to that, to authority and reason, our experience together Knowing the reality of Jesus, knowing how He's changed our lives, knowing how He's transformed us, and seeing how He has transformed the lives of other people, people who were miserable sinners, and all of a sudden they were taken by the grace of God and transformed into something completely different so that they become new creations in Jesus Christ. When we look at all of this evidence here, the only reasonable, experiential, authoritative conclusion that we can come up to is that Jesus really did truly rise bodily from the grave. Now that is extraordinary for us because that means that our faith as Christians is not anchored in the opinion of a a prophet who encountered some kind of angel and was dictated a book called the Quran. Our opinion is not uh, uh, based on, uh, our, our, our knowledge is not based on the opinion 
of a guy who decided to meditate under a tree and come up with a beautiful eightfold path, our opinion, uh, our, our knowledge, excuse me, is not dictated by somebody who worships uh, 30 million odd gods, as in Hinduism. Our knowledge is based on a historical reality, an established fact, true knowledge. For anybody who would want to examine it, anybody who would want to look at it and apply the reasonable criteria of history to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only conclusion you could come up with is that Jesus Christ really and truly rose bodily from the dead. He was put into a tomb. He was dead. The stone was rolled over the tomb. Three days later, the stone was rolled away. He was not there. His body was not there. He was up and walking around, interacting with His disciples, appearing to them, appearing to 500 other people. He is alive. And that is the only reasonable conclusion that you can come up with. That is the only basis of knowledge. And that means that our faith is anchored not in opinion, but is anchored in reality. Our faith is anchored not in just experience, but it is anchored in something that actually happened. The resurrection is at the heart of our faith. The resurrection is true. Jesus is alive. And that is knowledge for anybody who would receive it. For anyone who would receive it. And folks, as Christians, we must not capitulate to the world around us trying to say that our knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus is less important, less significant, more subject to opinion, simply because it is religiously oriented. Actually, it's not religiously oriented. It's historically oriented. It's scientifically oriented. It just so happens that belief in Jesus, as what the world would call religion, grew out of it. It is true. It is real. And knowing that... Just as other knowledge requires something of us. That's why a lot of people don't want to believe. That's why they don't look at the evidence in front of their faces. Because a lot of people, they don't want to face up to reality. Why does somebody keep charging their credit cards up to the max? To the point where they drive themselves into bankruptcy. Isn't it because they refuse to face reality? They refuse to face the knowledge that they have. Why is it that some people, once they receive a diagnosis of cancer, decide not to get treatment? Isn't it because often they don't want to face the knowledge? They want to reject it because by rejecting it, it's easier because when you have knowledge, it demands something of you. Why do people want to look the other way when a woman is being raped or an elderly person is being attacked? Because if they look at it and they acknowledge that something is actually happening there, that knowledge demands a response. And we see that so clearly back in the Nazi Holocaust as they killed the Jews. So many people, they knew what was going on, but what did they do? They denied it. They looked the other way because they knew that the knowledge of what was happening would require something of them, possibly even requiring their lives.
the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus is the same. Because if Jesus really is risen from the dead, as he is, then that means that we have to take seriously everything Jesus said. He's the only person to say, hey, listen, guys, you're going to kill me. I'm going to die. But three days later, I'll be, I'll be alive. I'll rise from the dead. The only religious leader to ever say that. Gandhi didn't do it. Buddha didn't do it. Uh, Muhammad didn't do it. Only Jesus did it. And that means when we have that knowledge, we have to take what he said seriously. And taking Jesus seriously means that we need to give him our lives. We need to surrender our lives to him, his leadership, and that reality. That is the only choice that we have when we have that knowledge. Oh, we can look the other way. We could ignore it. But the only responsible thing to do is to respond by surrendering ourselves to the leadership of Jesus Christ. And frankly, once we have that knowledge, the other demand it makes on us is that we have to tell other people. We have to share that knowledge, not as religious opinion, not as, well, this is my way, your way might be different because all ways go to the same place. Not that, well, it's my experience, your experience might be different. But we have to share that knowledge as knowledge, as truth, as fact. Because that is what it is. And to do anything less is irresponsible of us. To do anything less leaves the world hurting and broken. Wallowing in its sin when it could experience the majestic grace of God in Jesus Christ. So remember, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You can know that as certainly as you know anything. The question is, what will you do about it? Father God, I thank you so much for this truth, this reality, that Jesus Christ who once was dead, is now alive. Lord God, I pray that you would minister to every person here. Father, if there's someone here who has not responded to this truth, this reality, this knowledge, by giving their lives to Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to do that right now, today. And Father God, I pray that this knowledge would embolden us to live for Jesus. That this knowledge would remind us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. That this knowledge would compel us to live for Jesus every single day. And that this knowledge would lead us to tell others, to share the knowledge, so that others can experience the grace that comes through acknowledging this truth. Just as Paul said, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is our leader and believe in our hearts, know it truly that God raised him from the dead, we will have salvation. And so, Lord, help us to share that even more boldly to the glory and honor of Jesus. For we love you, praise you, and honor you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.